now I'm all thrown off. I wasn't quite 21 when I took my first full-time position in a church. Some of you were around for that, and some of you might have been involved in that decision. What were you thinking, first of all? I'm not quite sure, but thank you for that. Because even if you're young, uh, if you're young, like even if you're a pastor, even if you're a seminary graduate, you're just, you're just a young, dumb pastor. And being a pastor doesn't make you smarter than anyone else. Oh, see, I really expected a response there. Thank you. Appreciate that. Awesome. Maybe it does. Okay. Um, having degrees on your wall definitely doesn't make you any smarter. In my first full-time staff role in a church, one of my responsibilities was to visit shut-ins in the church, and that meant weekly visits to the nursing homes. And that was perfect for me because growing up, our Christian school that I grew up in went to the nursing home on a regular basis, and we sang and we visited with the residents. And then while I was in college, I led a weekly nursing home ministry in our church. So I was pretty well prepared for that where I landed in my first position in church. So while I was visiting uh, our church members in the nursing home, uh, I got to know some other residents as well. And wouldn't you know it, a few months into that very first year, one of those non-church member residents died. And since I was the closest thing he had to a pastor, I got the call to do the graveside service. I was 21. What were you doing when you were 21? I, I just don't know what they were thinking. As a pastor's kid, I've been going to funerals all my life. I mean, I was super ready for this, of course. I had been going to funerals, but never led one. And uh, I certainly had never worked with a family through that process and through that season. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. Thankfully, I had some really good mentors um, who led me through that very first um, experience. But when people are going through um, a difficult time, or they're experiencing loss, or they find themselves in what we've been calling in this teaching series for a few weeks now, we've been calling it a waiting room experience. Sometimes people are looking for answers to their questions, but even as a pastor, oftentimes we have the same questions that they do. Uh, people want to know why, and yeah, you've got, you know, I've, you, you, you got theological answers. I often do in the midst of a crisis, but that's not necessarily helpful. Uh, you know, in that never-ending waiting room in adversity and in pain, people don't necessarily want us to go into a long apologetic of, well, you know, there's pain and there's evil and there's sin in the world and the, the world is a fallen place and then and things aren't yet as God wants them to be. And that's, that's an answer, but it's not always a really helpful answer. So I discovered as I, as I moved through my 20s in, in ministry, doing life with people, and coming alongside them during difficult times when they were struggling with their teenagers for those years that I was in youth ministry or when teenagers were struggling with their parents, that happened too, or when there was a crippling addiction or a marriage was just kind of speeding in the wrong direction uh, or, or there was a serious illness. I learned a few things in those kinds of situations when I was in my uh, 20s and then in my 30s, I learned a bunch more and I expect that when I'm in my 40s, I'm going to learn some more. So when I get, when I get into my 40s. You're like, how old is this dude? You've been there, you've, you've been in this situation, right, as a friend, where somebody calls you or texts you and they need you. I mean, they, you know you need to go. You know you need to be available. So you're driving over there and you're like, what am I going to say? Some of you are gift givers by nature and so you stop and you get some balloons and some flowers and some stuffed animals because you don't have any words. Some of you cook so you bring tons of food. We all want to do something. We want to say something. We want to say the right thing. We want to say and do something helpful. Here's what I've learned about this. There's this thing that uh, around the church we call it the fellowship of suffering. How many of you ever heard that term, fellowship of suffering? Okay. That's what the Apostle Paul called it, the fellowship of suffering. And the, the fellowship of suffering is basically this, that there's a bond 
between those who've suffered deeply and between those who've suffered similarly. There's a natural automatic bond that goes deep immediately between people who've suffered in similar ways. People who've suffered deeply and similarly when they meet each other, uh, when they get to share their stories with each other, there's just this thing that, that happens that the rest of us, regardless of our education, regardless of our expertise, regardless of our belief systems, we just have to kind of wait and go sit on the sidelines and watch that happen. Another thing with the fellowship of suffering is that those who suffered are uniquely qualified to serve those who are suffering. That those who've suffered in the past, regardless of how much education you have, how much Bible you know or don't know, you are uniquely positioned to to comfort and minister healing to the people who are suffering similarly in the present. In other words, when, when someone who's been there walks into the room with someone who's still there, something very powerful takes place there. That, that's, kind of, that's the fellowship of suffering. Honestly, and it's, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited, and this is, I know it sounds weird, but I'm excited to, that we're launching our new uh, grief recovery team under our care ministry. You're going to hear more about that in just the next couple of weeks, but there's just so much for potential for really significant connection and authentic community around shared and similar experiences. So the fellowship of suffering. There's a thing that goes beyond knowledge. It goes beyond training. There's just something about being in the presence of someone uh, who's been where you are or who is where you are, but maybe they've been there longer. Someone who spent time in the same waiting room where you find yourself. And it's in their past, maybe, and now it's part of their story. Or someone who spent time in the same waiting room where you are, and they're still there, but they've been there a little longer than you have. There's something powerful about that. Oh, here's one more thing about the fellowship of suffering, is that comfort from those who've been comforted is life-giving to those who need comfort. Comfort from those who've been comforted is life-giving, because it's not just sympathy, which is fine if that's all you have to offer. All right? That's all you have to offer is sympathy, then offer that. But it, it's not, it, this thing goes beyond balloons and cards and casserole. It's not, and it's not even just prayer and it's not just a hug. And all that's important, but it goes beyond that. When someone who's been there gives comfort to someone who needs comfort, that is empathy. It's life-giving. And what their presence is saying without saying it is that you're going to get through this. You're going to get through this. You're going to be okay on the other side of this. Life is, there is life on the other side. You don't need to give up hope because look at me. I'm just a little further down the road. I'm a few miles, a few years down the road. So there's hope. And if you don't believe what the pastor has to say, and you don't believe what the books have to say, and you don't believe the greeting cards, and you don't believe all that, just look at me because I've been there. I've lived through it. I know. And that's life-giving. It's a powerful, powerful expression of empathy. Uh, we've seen this. You've probably been a part of this either on the receiving side or maybe on the giving side. But here's the surprise lesson, and here's the thing we're going to talk about for a few minutes as we wrap up this series, Waiting Room. It's this, that comfort and comforting is life-giving to the comforter as well. Comforting, bringing comfort to someone who needs comfort is not only life-giving to the person on the receiving side, it's also life-giving to the person who brings life. In other words, when a person who has faced difficult times and adversity and loss and that waiting room experience, there's something about bringing your story into the life of someone else who shares that experience. Um, There's something life-giving there for the giver and the receiver. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes as we wrap up this topic because I, I really believe that's part of the purpose. This is where you begin to mine meaning out of an experience that seems to be meaningless. If this is your first Sunday at Faith Community, you're probably thinking, hey, my friends told me this is like the fun church and the music was uplifting and energetic and there was lots of energy and it's hopeful and positive and so what in the world is going on? What are we talking about? Hang with me. We've been in this teaching series called Waiting Room. And we've, 
What we've been doing in this, in this series is we've been asking the question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? And that's what this whole series has been about. This is part five, so if this is your first time, I know, or maybe your first time in a while, and it probably feels like you're walking in the last 15 minutes of a movie. But we've just been asking this question, what do you do when you find yourself in life circumstances where there's nothing you can do? There's no way forward, there's no way out, there's, 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 there's just there's no, happy, there's no happy ending, there's no happy, happily ever after for sure. There's like a new normal, the dream is never going to happen in your career, in your education, in your marriage, in your finances. The dream just isn't going to happen. And this is just the way it is and the way it's going to be. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do? So over the past couple months, uh, we began, uh, we've been talking about this. And if this is your first time here, or somehow, somehow you missed any of this, which I find really hard to believe that you would miss anything here. But if you'll go to our website, go to faithcommunityfellowship.com and go to the media player. All of our sermons are on there, and you can go back and catch up on any of the messages in this series that you may have missed. You can listen at your computer. You can listen on your mobile device. Of course, if you're a podcast listener, you can just find us on iTunes and subscribe, and you'll never miss a thing. You'll get a notification every week as soon as a podcast goes live, and you'll be all up to date. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do. What do you do when the only way out and the only way forward is unethical or immoral or illegal or unhealthy or just unwise? What do you do? We've said that when we find ourselves in these kinds of uh, parenthetical chapters of life, it's easy to come to the conclusion that I'll never be happy again. And you start thinking back to those times when you were really, really happy. Some of you had to go way, way back. Some of you went all the way to like high school or middle school. And you convinced yourself that you were happy then. And we start to think that nothing good can come from this. And the last thing you want to hear is some preacher up in front of the church saying, don't worry about it, you just wait, it'll get better. God bless you, God has something great in store for you. It'll all work out for good. Because you're like, uh, no, I don't think so. Give, give me the microphone, let me tell you my story. Uh, and make sure you hit record, because people need to hear this. Because I don't think you understand the real world, world Todd. You know, let, let me tell you my story, because it still hasn't worked out for good. So I don't know what you're talking about. Then there's a tendency to think that there's no point in continuing. There's no point in being responsible. There's no point in being accountable. There's no point in living by moral standards. There's no point in having sexual boundaries. There's no point in even trying to do the right thing anymore. There's no point in staying in this relationship. There's no point in being kind. There's no point in being generous. There's just no point. We turned all that on its head, and we said that regardless of the circumstances, you can be happy again. Something good can come from this, and there is a purpose in it. And in part one, we looked at the story of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 4, and specifically the time in his life where he found himself in prison, John the Baptist, and then Jesus, his cousin and close friend, decided that would be a good time for him to move even further away from John, from the dungeon where John would eventually be executed. And from that passage, we concluded that we should not interpret God's silence as absence. And we kind of created this new category that helps all of us understand that our unanswered prayers do not mean that God is uninterested and our unanswered prayers do not mean that God is uninvolved. So then we spent some time uh, looking at what the Apostle Paul had to say in the letter to, Philipp- to the Philippian church uh, about the idea of contentment. And we said that there's a category of contentment that works in all circumstances. Because if it's true for Paul, it must be true for us. And we said that many times in the waiting room experience, we lose sight of what really hangs in the balance, and sometimes maybe who hangs in the balance. So we took some time to look at a passage in Philippians chapter 4, and then we, we kind of drilled down in verse 13, it's a famous verse, and we talked about what that verse actually means. That there's a promise in it, and it's to be applied in the context of contentment. So we gave you a little card to take home, and it looks like this, and there's a few of them left on the table in the lobby. And the top of the card is a prayer uh, for the morning that simply says, I can't, you can. 
And the bottom of the prayer of the card is a prayer for the evening that just says, teach me the mystery of Christ in me. We talked about what that means. Then last time in part four, we looked at the words of James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, where James said, trials test our confidence in God. And we're all like, uh-huh, this is true. And we looked at James chapter one, and we said there's a sense in which when you think about your waiting room, when you think about the greatest source of tension in your life right now, that could be an adult child, it could be a child, child who's living in your home, could be in your marriage, could be financially, could be something at work, could be something in your health, could just think about the greatest tension, the thing that just absorbs your thoughts, the things that you pray about when you pray. We said that the tension in your life right now could be the focal point of God's activity in your life if we choose to trust it. And then we talked about wisdom because James had something to say about wisdom. We said that wisdom is essentially the ability to see things from a broader perspective, to see things as God sees them, and that we are to pray for wisdom. And we're to pray, God, give me wisdom in this situation. Give me wisdom with this person. Give me wisdom to see as you see. Give me, just give me wisdom to see as you see. God, my emotions are a little jacked up right now, so give me wisdom. Help me see this. Help me see him. Help me see her as you see them. And give me the wisdom to see as you see. And so we prayed a prayer together. We put it on a bookmark because you all still use books. It says, Heavenly Father, I believe that you will use this even if you choose not to remove it. And in my waiting room, grant me the wisdom to see as you see and the courage to do as you say. Hey, uh, so that's the, that's the summary of where we've been. If you want that in, uh, in print, it looks like this, and it's in the lobby, and grab that on your way out. And as you're catching up and going back and visiting some of these passages and, and digging a little bit deeper, hopefully that'll be a tool you can use. This, is, this has been a difficult topic. Uh, it's been a little heavy for five weeks. I understand that. And it's weird because I've actually really enjoyed putting this content together and preparing all the content. Uh, but I haven't necessarily enjoyed delivering it on Sunday because <laughs> it's one thing to sit in my office or to sit uh, at Flexit and put ideas into a document. And sometimes it's another thing to say those words in a room where there are people who are living what you are talking about. <laughs> so I know I'm not delivering this in a vacuum. I get that. I realize I'm talking to real people with real life stuff with real-life waiting room circumstances right now. And the only reason I feel like I have any authority at all to talk about these things, it's not necessarily based on my personal experience. You need to know that. I'm not pretending to have experienced all the same things you've experienced. So it's not based on my personal experience. And it's not necessarily based on the experience of the people I know, although in some cases that may be true. I believe what gives me the authority, or any of us the authority, to speak on this topic and to speak on it pretty extensively. I mean, this is part five in a series, so you've got about four hours of content, and God love you for suffering through that. But the reason I'm able to say the things that I've been saying is because of the men and the women who brought us the story of Jesus. The men and women who wrote the books of the, of the Bible, especially the New Testament. The men and women who made sure the message of Jesus made it out of the first century, who survived, that it survived the, the oppression of the Jewish temple system and the oppression of the Roman Empire. They were not strangers to adversity. In fact, they faced all kinds of adversity that we face to the 10th degree. What they experienced in their normal day-to-day living would drive most of us out of our minds and perhaps might even drive us away from our faith. But they demonstrated an extraordinary faith in God and in the resurrected Jesus, and they maintained that faith in difficult, difficult circumstances. So the reason we take them seriously, and this is really important, it's not just because what they said is in the Bible. That only works if you accept the Bible as authoritative, the authoritative word of God, which, which I do, but I understand maybe you don't. But the reason we take them seriously on this is that they were men and women who knew Jesus. They were men and women who knew people who knew Jesus. 
and they maintained their faith in Jesus through difficult circumstances. And they came out on the other side and they would say to us that there is no conflict between adversity and faith in God. And all of us, me included, at some point, we, in our lives, we wrestle with that. It's like, can I continue to believe in and worship a good God when bad things are happening all around me? And these early Christ followers in the New Testament would say, absolutely, because we maintain faith in God and we maintain faith in our resurrected Savior in spite of adversity that would leave most of us in the fetal position for the rest of our lives. And the key person we've talked about um, throughout the series, we keep, we keep coming back to the Apostle Paul. In fact, a few weeks ago in part two, uh, we looked at a passage in, in 2 Corinthians 12, and we learned that the man whose words we're about to read, that he tells us that God gave him a painful, humiliating, debilitating, permanent condition to wrestle with his whole life. Even after God called him to a big mission, even after he proved his devotion to that calling, think about that, God allowed him to have something that was painful, humiliating, debilitating, and permanent, and Paul prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed for God to remove it, and God eventually said no, and the Apostle Paul continued to pursue God's call on his life and to follow Jesus anyway. In fact, Paul came to the place in his life where he could view his adversity, and if we could just get there, you know, he got, came to a place where he could view his suffering, his waiting room experience, as a gift coming from a loving Heavenly Father, a gift with a purpose and a gift with a promise. And he realized that embracing his own inability was the only way he was ever going to experience Christ's ability in him. Here's why this is important. Because for some of us, this will be something that characterizes our lives at some point. And in those moments when you think, can I continue? Can I really stick with this? Is, is God really trustworthy? Is he as good as uh, we sing about on Sunday? The answer is absolutely Yes. This is not in contrast to God's will. It's part of what God is up to, and it's part of the human experience. So the Apostle Paul, in the book we call 2 Corinthians, and the reason we call it 2 Corinthians is because Paul wrote several letters to the church in Corinth, because they were a seriously messed up group. Some of us have been through all kinds of weird church experiences, of just total dysfunction. So take that and put all that together, and you might have an idea, maybe, of what the Corinthian church looks like. But he had lots to say to them, uh, and he tried to help them figure out the messes they'd created and to how to do this new church thing. And of those letters, a couple of them survived. We know from historical records there was at least a third letter. Uh, it's the lost letter to the Corinthians. So if you find it, let me know, and I'll let the people at the Bible app know so we can get it plugged back in there. We can get that taken care of. I don't think that's how it works. First and Second Corinthians were, were such important documents in the first century that the people in, those, in that church, uh, they went, when they got that letter, they went right down to the UPS store and made copies, and they bound and laminated it and stuck it in their safe so that other churches could read it. Actually, that's not true. They copied it by hand, letter by letter, on some kind of papyrus that they distributed to other churches. And, and Paul's just like, well, I'm just writing a letter to my friend in Corinth. And he writes this letter, and they made copies, and they distributed it. And think about this. 2,000 years later, we still have copies most of us have it on our phones. We carry it with us all the time. It's crazy. So here's what the Apostle Paul, who faced all kinds of adversity, here's what he says. Paul, who knew a bunch of Jesus' disciples, who knew Luke and Peter, and he knew Jesus' brother James. He knew all these people, all these people had spent time with Jesus. Here's what he says about pain and suffering and adversity, the waiting room experiences of life, and specifically about comfort in those circumstances. Let's read some verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Stop. 
In other words, compassion and comfort come from God. This is a little bit odd. And the reason this is a little bit odd is because in the same letter, 12 chapters later, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that this God, who is the Father of compassion and the source of our comfort, actually allowed him to suffer in a way that God decided not to remove. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. This is the same letter where we find Paul talking about his, what he calls his thorn in the flesh, this thing that was painful, humiliating, debilitating, and permanent. He says, I asked God to remove it. I asked for three seasons of my life. I asked him to remove it, and God said no. It's the same letter where he says God's a father of compassion and the God of comfort. And for us, that looks like a conflict. If he's the father and the source of compassion, he's not going to give you something you have to deal with your whole life, is he? I mean, and Paul's like, oh yeah, he might. But if he's a God of all comfort, that doesn't, doesn't that mean that he wants to make your life comfortable? <laughs> and Paul's like, no. No, my life can be absolutely uncomfortable. And I can continue to believe in and serve a God of all comfort. For us, the word comfort's kind of a soft word, but in this case, the original word actually means to, an empowering empathy. Let's keep going, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that, pause, we don't especially like this when you really think about it. We don't want to be comforted in our trouble, do we? Because what do you want God to do with your trouble? Take it away. That's what we want. When things are going bad for you, you don't say, God, just comfort me in this. God, my husband, he's an idiot, so just comfort me as I deal with him. God, I need a job, but I'm not asking you for a job. I'm just asking you to comfort me while I look for a job. God, I'm single, and I really need a spouse. Man, you have no idea. I'm just, but I'm not asking you to give me a spouse. I'm just asking you to comfort me while I'm single because it's been long enough. That's not how we pray. you pray like that you had to learn to pray like that it we tend we tend to feel like if we pray for comfort it's like we've given up so i'm not asking god for the big thing that i really want him to do so i'm just going to ask him to help me through this stuff i'm dealing with and paul says you can pray for comfort you can pray for god to deliver you jesus said ask for whatever you want so go ahead but here's the promise the promise is that while you wait there it is when it seems that you're going to wait indefinitely, God has promised to bring us comfort. The God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so that, wait, so that, that means there's a promise. And if, and if I were writing this, it would read something like, so that we would be comforted. So that I would be comfortable. But that's not what it says. What he says next is really important and significant. Maybe for somebody here, and this is the first baby step of purpose that you might find in the adversity that you're facing right now in the waiting room circumstances of your life. He says, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we've received from God. So Paul, you're saying the reason that God's going to comfort me is so that I can comfort someone else. Yes. So he's not comforting me just to comfort me. Well, there's that. Because he loves you enough to do that. But it's bigger than that. It's more purposeful than that. It doesn't end with you. It's not always all about us. And I love the, the way these two words contrast here. 
He says, who comforts us in all our trouble, so we can comfort those in any trouble. <laughs> that God comforts us in our trouble so that we are prepared, so that we are equipped to comfort other people in any of their trouble with comfort that comes from God. So the bottom line, here's what God's saying, that God comforts us to comfort others. God comforts us to comfort others. Or to build on that, God, God may not comfort us through others, but he still comforts us to comfort others. And I'm not even necessarily asking you to act on this today. I'm not asking you to believe this or accept it yet. If you're not there, I just want you to know, when you come to the point where you're able to say and you're willing to say, God, I don't see any point in this. I've been in this waiting room for like forever and I don't see the point yet and I'm pretty sure there isn't one. I think you've kind of forgot about my deal. I mean, what is the purpose? Could this ever lead to anything good? Is there any kind of silver lining anywhere? Is there anything positive that can come out of this? The answer is yes. That you will be uniquely equipped to comfort someone who's walking where you are walking right now. That you're uniquely equipped to do what some of us couldn't possibly do. That you're uniquely equipped to do what, what I, with my years of pastoral experience and all my theological training, couldn't possibly do nearly as well as you. You're uniquely equipped to represent God, to be the hands and feet and eyes and ears of Jesus to someone who's going through what you're going through or what you've gone through. And I know you're so disappointed in that answer because it's not a great answer, but it is the truth. Uh, It's the only answer I know. And for many people, it's a first step. It's the first step of a sense of purpose behind the pain that you might be experiencing or that you've already experienced. The Apostle Paul goes on, verse 5. This, this, this verse gets a little confusing. We'll try to sort it out. It says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, there's that fellowship of suffering thing. Depending on the, whatever church tradition you come from, the Protestant and Catholic views on this are very different on the meaning of the term sufferings of, uh, the sufferings of Christ. Because the sufferings of Christ can refer to the actual physical suffering of Christ when he was arrested and beaten and crucified. Some traditions interpret suffering of Christ as when Christ became human. And he experienced everything humans experience. All the human circumstances, all the human emotions, all that would be encapsulated in the suffering of Christ. So wherever you land on that, Paul says, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, he was human, we are human. He experienced human adversity, we experience adversity. So also, he says, and what he's doing here is there are two sides to the sentence. So right in the middle of it, he says, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. In other words, there's an abundance in our suffering, and there's a comfort that also abounds. So let me try to summarize this confusing verse. Here's what he's saying. That our capacity to comfort is often determined by the degree to which we have suffered. And I I threw the word often in there because I think that's important. There are times that the Holy Spirit can just work through you to bring comfort in a way that you're like, where did that come from? But our capacity to comfort is often determined by the degree degree to which we have suffered. Our capacity to comfort other people is determined not necessarily by our theology or not by our education and not by our age and not by how long you've been going to church and not by how many worship songs you know by heart. Our capacity to comfort other people is often determined by the degree to which we have suffered. Which means, for those of you who are in the waiting room season of life right now, you're facing some adversity right now, you've faced your share of adversity in the past, I know you didn't sign up for this. I know you didn't ask for this. I know that this, this doesn't necessarily solve anything for you. But you just need to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The Apostle Paul, who knew men and women who knew Jesus, 
who had a personal encounter with Jesus himself, who lived every single day with some kind of debilitating physical affliction, and yet he maintained his faith in God. He says to you and he says to me that you are uniquely qualified for a kind of ministry in the lives of others that no one else is qualified for unless they've experienced what you've experienced, unless they've walked where you've walked, unless they've waited where you've waited. Our capacity to comfort often is determined by the degree to which we've suffered. He continues, verse 6. If we are distressed, we, meaning the group of people that was with him at the time, those people who are ministering with him, he says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. In other words, if we're facing difficult times and are comforted in our difficult times, it's not just for us so that we'll feel better about it. It's not just for our benefit. It's for you too. When we, what we face helps prepare us to help you face what you face. What we suffer helps you helps us serve you in what you suffer. If we're distressed, he says, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. He wraps up this thought in verse 7. And our hope for you is firm, because you know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. I want to to do something real quick. I want to reread this passage and put it all together and summarize for you. And here's why. Because uh, some of you have not read the Bible ever, maybe, or at least in years. Maybe the only time you hear the Bible is when you come to church or when you visit your grandma. Uh, Some of you, even if you're not a Christian, even if you aren't sure you believe the whole Bible, some of you need this this morning. And for some of you, these verses are going to be the first step in finding purpose for your pain, for your adversity, for your waiting room experience. So just listen. Let me read these words of Paul all together as one thought. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in your, our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So in the waiting room, bottom line for this passage, bottom line for this message, in the waiting room, in those set of circumstances where there's nothing you can do, even while you're in your own waiting room experience, comfort those who need comfort with the comfort you have received. I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, it's easy for you to say. Easy for you to stand up there and say things like that. But listen, if you've been there, if you're still there, if where you are in the waiting room experience is where you've been for a long, long time, listen, you are uniquely positioned to comfort those in similar situations. And I'm not saying God caused your waiting room circumstances. I'm not saying he caused it. He might have, I don't know. He might have allowed it. He might have had a, I don't know how the, all that works. He might have had nothing to do with it. It might have just been your sin nature or someone else's sin nature and the free will of human beings caused your waiting room circumstances. I don't know. And I'm not even saying that everything that your experience is, is all going to work out. That, 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 you know, everyone will be better for it. It's all going to be good. I, all I'm saying is that there's an opportunity, that there's the possibility of purpose. Remember the story of Joseph in Genesis. You got to the end of his story in Genesis chapter 50 after uh, Joseph's father had died, and uh, he gets his brothers together, 
And uh, they were scared to death of what he was going to do, that he would finally enact his revenge. And if you don't know the story of Joseph, man, you need to read that. Just read it today, Genesis 37 through 50. Uh, and he reassured them, though, at the end. I'm kind of this a spoiler alert. He says, I forgive you. Actually, says, I've forgiven you. What you intended for evil against me, God used for good. So there's a potential for purpose in your pain. When you lean into the purpose in your pain, it breathes life into your soul, even in the long, long waiting room experience. Because comforting is life-giving, not simply to the comforted, but to the one bringing the comfort. So as you deal with your waiting room circumstances, as you deal with circumstances that you would give anything to change, as you deal with circumstances that you have begged God to take away, and you think there can't be any purpose, there can't be any potential for good. You've been here long enough. You certainly haven't seen it yet. There can't be any potential for God to be glorified in this. And you're tempted to believe if God, if God doesn't change something here, if I don't, if I don't, maybe I just need to make something happen here because I'm never going to be happy again. Nothing good can come from this. There's no point in continuing. You need to understand the Apostle Paul, who is well acquainted with adversity and opposition in extremely difficult circumstances, and our Lord Jesus, who is well acquainted with adversity and pain and suffering and every human emotion, and many of the men and women who brought us the stories of Jesus and of the first century church, and many of the men and women listening, listen, who you are sitting around right now in this room, would tell you that you can be happy again. You, something good can come from this, and there is always a reason to continue. Because your pain shouldn't be wasted. Your grief and loss shouldn't be wasted. Your disappointment shouldn't be wasted. And your waiting room experience shouldn't be wasted. So even in the waiting room, for sure, on the other side of the waiting room, you're perfectly prepared. You're perfectly equipped to bring comfort to someone. To bring the same comfort to someone that someone brought to you. Words they would never believe coming from me. Words they'd never accept coming from someone other than someone who had experienced what they're experiencing. Someone who's walked where they've walked and someone who's waited where they've waited. So as you wrestle with your waiting room experience, would you be willing in your desperation, would you be willing even when you're not sure what you believe, when you're not sure that God can be trusted, would you be willing to say, God, if you can use this, use this. God, if there's comfort to be passed along, as little comfort as I feel like I've received, I'm willing to pass that on. Are you willing to do that? And what you'll discover is the, the comfort that you're holding on to is comfort that can be passed along to someone else. Because Paul said we're comforted to comfort others. Comforting others comforts us as well. Comforting is life-giving to the ones who are comforted, and it's comforting and life-giving to those who are bringing it. The Apostle Paul's letter to uh, the church in Philippi, the book of, uh, of uh, Philippians, Paul made the recipients of that letter this promise, and I think it's a promise for all of us. He says, I'm confident of this that he who began a work in you, a good work in you, will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The work that God's begun in you, this work that includes pain, this work that includes suffering, this work that includes sometimes grief and loss, the work that includes unfulfilled dreams, the work that includes everything that being human in a fallen world means, the work that includes waiting room circumstances, he says in all of that, God can use it, God wants to use it, God will work in it, God will work through it, and he'll bring his work to completion. So the challenge for us really comes down to will we trust him in that? Will we trust him in the waiting room? Will, will we be engaged with the work that he's already doing in us in the waiting room? Will we remain surrendered to his will in the waiting room? And will we 
pray and agree with Jesus, your will be done in my life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for the person who's struggling in their waiting room circumstances, I just pray that you give them courage not to give up. Give them courage to believe that you're up to something. That your silence does not mean you're absent. Pray you bring someone into their life to bring them comfort. And then once they've been comforted, bring someone into their life who needs to hear from them, who needs to be comforted by them. Lord, thank you for the comfort of those who have walked where we're walking. And I pray that as a church, we keep our eyes wide open to the opportunities to comfort those who need comforting with the comfort that we've received from others. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Listen to this song.
bless you. Have a great week. You're dismissed.